You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. Ten years ago, it was right message, right person, right time. Now it's right message, right person, right time, right platform. So that hasn't changed and it isn't going to change. But interestingly, there is a camp who believe that actually we don't want personalization. And he's written this fantastic article in Forbes that I'm trying to share with as many people as I can. And the title of it is, Your Company's Data Might Be Worth More Than Your Company Itself. I think what's next for the sports industry, and there are some rights owners using this, is um, the qualitative data that's more about the way people are feeling, their emotions, their motivations, but that principle of understanding what's driving your fan or your customer, as opposed to, what have they done in the past and using that to predict what they're likely to do in the future. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time, Fiona Green, who is the co-founder of Winners, an agency based around CRM in sports. And she's just written the second edition of her book, Winning with Data. The first edition was really a breakthrough in the industry. I don't think anyone else had written such a specific book about data and sports. Of course, it's a crucial area for all sports clubs, particularly as we start to come out of the pandemic. So with the second edition coming out, it seemed a good time to compare and contrast the first book and the second, but also where we are in that particular part of the sports industry. As I said, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a sports digital consultant. I work in the areas of communication strategy, content strategy, digital, digital marketing, etc. You can find me at mrrichardclark.com or on all social at mrrichardclark. E on the end of Clark's the only thing you need to remember. Anyway, without further ado, let's talk data. Let's talk CRM with this lady. Hi, I'm Fiona Green and I'm the proprietor of a niche consultancy called Winners and also the author of a book, Winning with Data, which goes through the use of data for the sports industry on the business side of things, though, not the performance side. And the second version has come out, which has prompted this conversation, Fiona. Thanks for speaking to me. So, you know, the first question, the standard question, I'm sure you've been asked it by a lot of people. What's changed between the book, which I think was 2018, if memory serves? That's right. And now, three years or so, you've updated it, you've developed it. So what's changed in the CRM world? Because the focus is on that CRM world in sport at the moment. It is indeed on the uh, the use of data and, uh, and CRM and technology and digital marketing, etc. So I guess, I, I guess if you're asking me what prompted me to rewrite it, and you'll know this, Richard, from your own writing experience, the minute I submitted it as a finished manuscript, there were things I wanted to change about it. I mean, for example, typos are always missed, aren't they? But more importantly, the world is changing and evolving so promptly. The majority of the book deals with the principles and the principles are never going to change. But what changes around it is the technology, the terminology, the use cases, etc. So I had always wanted to write another edition anyway. When Routledge kindly agreed to support a second edition, that's when I actually had to stop and think what's different in a second edition. <laughs> so what I can say is, in terms of the physical book, there are 36,000 different words. So the first edition was 82,000 words. This one's 92,000 words. So there are 10,000 more words, plus 26,000 of the original words have also been replaced. So where are those changes? Well, firstly, different case studies. I've got some fantastic new case studies. Some of the existing case studies have been updated, 
all the old case studies are still available as a downloadable link, by the way. So you do get the um, first edition case studies. And of course, we've had to talk about um, the pandemic. Why wouldn't we? Because that's had an impact on our industry. If, if it's done anything for the industry of CRM and data, it's elevated the importance. But of course, what it's actually done for the sports industry is forced us to think about different ways to engage. Um, technology changes. We've put a little bit more emphasis on different types of data storage environments. The first one referred to CDPs and DMPs, but primarily focused on a single customer view. We've gone a bit more into the CDP world, the customer data platform. And also we've talked a little bit more about cross-channel marketing automation, um, just because again, the industry is progressing and people are getting more comfortable with these areas. And of course, at the time that it was published, it was pre the actual implementation of GDPR as law. We all knew it was coming. We were all enacting on it, acting on it rather. But the second edition, this is post GDPR. And actually we've got a great, great case study there from AS Roma. Um, but again, the original case study, which was AZ Outmark can still be accessed. So they're the most, they're the changes from a content perspective. What's also changed, and you, again, you might be able to relate to this as an author, is the imposter syndrome. So a bit of the imposter syndrome kicked in with the first edition. I didn't really promote it. I didn't feel massively proud of it. I was extremely proud of the contribution the industry gave me, their, their anecdotes and their, their, their case studies. But obviously I had doubt in my ability to, to convert my knowledge into words on paper because I had such tremendous feedback over the last couple of years, because the first edition has been listed as required or recommended reading in so many universities, and we've had business executives from all over and um, praise it, that gave me much more confidence in the second edition. So for example, um, reaching out to you and asking you, would you, would you be interested in um, a podcast with me? I didn't do that with the first edition, um, but with the second edition, yeah, I'm puffing my chest out and I'm feeling quite proud of the, quite proud of it. So, Let's talk about GDPR, actually. I mean, because you mentioned it. I was going to mention that later in the podcast. But let's talk about that now, because it did coincide. The book, your book did coincide with GDPR. OK, so what's been the actual effect of that? Because I remember discussing GDPR with you at the time or even ahead of its launch. And the approach struck me as tremendously interesting, because albeit there was 4% of, um, of turnover, you could be fined and millions of euros, etc., they were actually taking a approach that appeared to be make best practice, move towards uh, more fair, equitable and sensitive use of data and will work with you. Has that continued to roll out with that sort of um, feeling, emotion around it? Because it seemed to be quite a progressive approach, in my opinion. Yeah, so um, it was our view that it was always very progressive, that... For example, here in the UK, ICO was not saying you have to go from being non-compliant to 100% compliant. There's always been a need for you to be compliant. But even ICO did myth-busting posts, blog posts, and one of them was, we are not expecting you to be 100% compliant. I mean, they didn't actually use those terms, but reading between the lines, it's unlikely that anyone's ever going to be 100% compliant. And by the way, in the GDPR, there's an awful lot of black and white. I mean, sorry, there's, a, there's black and white, but there's an awful lot of grey. And of course, we only turn that grey into black or white once there's case law. So 
the message that we were getting and certainly the message we were sharing was that we are looking to make sure you follow the law because it is black and white and where there's gray you interpret it in the way that the GDPR or ICO or whoever your local data protection office would want you to interpret it. Now that was very different to advice we were seeing being given by other parties out there. I mean we had our own clients that we subsequently picked up who were told by lawyers you've got to delete this data you've got to delete that data but I, I clearly remember a conversation with ICO that's and, and and I call their helpline all the time by the way they're so helpful I clearly remember a conversation where they said we are not looking to ruin anybody's business here we're just looking to make sure you think about your customers and you put them first which by the way that's what digital transformation is about as well putting your customers first we're looking to make sure you can follow the law without damaging your business and you're constantly heading in the right direction. So that progressive approach that you interpreted, yes, absolutely, it was always there. It was, don't, don't get me wrong though, they are capable, ICO is capable and has come down quite heavily on people who have blatantly breached the law. And, and obviously it's not just ICO here in the UK, it's other data protection agencies across Europe. There are some you know, big case studies of in the sports industry, rights owners being hit um, with breach issues and um, following fines. I think the biggest one I'm actually aware of personally in, in the sports industry when it comes to rights owners is um, La Liga, Spain's La Liga, who were hit with quarter of a million euros um, for their fan app. I don't know if you know the story of that one, but it's fascinating. Um, they created this app that Again, depending on which post you believe, I, I've never heard it from the horse's mouth, so I'm only repeating the material that I read, was that it was originally developed to help La Liga understand where there are illegal um, downloads, or sorry, illegal broadcasts of their footage being played. So um, the app had this wonderful functionality. And by the way, you had to consent to it. They followed the law. You had to consent to it. That at any point in time, their micro the microphone could turn on for a five-second soundbite and the location data would kick in, so they knew where you were. And the principle was, if the microphone kicks in and they can hear you in a pub listening to watching a, a broadcast, and they've got your location, and nobody in that location has bought the rights to the broadcast, they'll know that there's an illegal broadcast going on. And um, but where the case, where they lost their case when they were taken to court for breach, was that five-second microphone burst. The only person that consented to being heard was the person who'd actually downloaded the app. But of course, if they're listening, to, if they're in a pub with a bunch of mates around them, their mate's personal data was compromised and they did not um, consent to it. Only the app downloader themselves. So quite an interesting case. But again, that's not from the horse's mouth. Um, that's from the subsequent posts and articles that people have written about the actual case. I want to get back into the data and privacy issue a little bit later on, but let's just stick with GDPR. We started there. So I've, st I've started on a specific case, but I think it's really, really important. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, and, and you rightly say that it was all a process of starting to play digital catch up to a certain extent. And, the, and you know, the, the world had moved digital and, and data was part was was a massive part of that. And we are still in the process in every form of life of uh, the legislation is, is starting to catch up and there were grey areas, as you said. It led to clubs, football clubs in particular, taking vastly different approaches to their data. And I think the interesting one was Manchester United. Didn't they just scratch it and start again? 
think I might I don't know whether they I don't know whether they did that. Um, what I did know, and, and I was quite vocal about this, firstly, they did this fantastic campaign urging people to opt in, okay, mm. give marketing consent. And that was a fantastic media-led campaign to increase the size of their marketing database. Why wouldn't they did that? But the only thing they did that I didn't believe was appropriate was they emailed everybody asking you to opt in. And of course, not just in GDPR, but in the um, Direct Marketing Act, you're not allowed to actually email someone and ask them to opt in because if you're it, emailing, you're using their data in the first place. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, but but also it was an interesting approach because they emailed me and asked me to opt in, and I decided not to do it. Yet I was already opted in and receiving their campaigns, so they actually lost me as a customer. There was nothing in the GDPR that said they had to come back to me and ask me to opt in again. But they lost me in that process. But look, Man United, I can't say anything negative about them apart from I wouldn't have done that campaign if I was them, because obviously they're one of our um, uh, one of the brands that we uphold as a standard bearer when it comes to um, the use of CRM and data in the sports industry here in Europe. Um, but, yeah, I would be interested to understand why they felt the need to do that. It doesn't matter. They've got a database of, I don't know, 35 million fans, 9 million of whom are highly engaged. So either way, they're, they're doing a great job. But yeah, it was an interesting approach at the time. And uh, I imagine they would have taken a hit on the size of their database at that particular time. Yes, but they, but, they, but, but, but they made up for that by doing a fantastic marketing campaign, which would have got more people into their database anyway. And also, and I think they, I, I read uh, quotes supporting this, that even though their database might have been smaller, the relative percentage of, of, of engagement was higher because they'd, they'd taken out the people who weren't particularly engaged and weren't particularly uh, active parts of that, uh, of that database. Yeah, yeah, but we'd never advocate taking data out of your database because they might not be engaged at that time, and that's why we use re-engagement campaigns and tactics to get people back into the environment. Or maybe, And if it transpires, actually, they never answer to email anyway. They need another channel to engage with you've still got that data point that provides you with some insight. I would imagine that they, when you say they took out that data, they probably took it out of their email marketing platform, but I hope they didn't actually delete it. I'm sure they wouldn't have actually deleted it because just the fact that they know this person does not respond to email is a valuable insight in itself. This person does not respond to email. They've clearly got a relationship with Man United and this is what it's been in the past. We need to find another channel to engage with them. But, you know, we work with clients all the time who have um, customers or fans who aren't engaging with email, but we don't delete them out of the database. We delete them. We put them in an environment where it doesn't cost them money to store them, for example, because sometimes email marketing platforms, you're paid on the quantity of records you have there. So if they're not responding to emails, you take them out of that, but you don't get rid of the data. It's still a very valuable data point. But again, you know, anybody who works in email marketing, we talk about re-engagement strategies that if people are not responding for a certain period of time, you have a win back plan. Like, how do we get these people to engage? Because it might be that people have not engaged for three months because, I don't know, that they were distracted, they were, had their mind on something else, but they fundamentally still love to know about Man United. So the next time Man United has a massive statement to make, that's the time that you go back to these people who aren't engaging to see if there's something else you can do, something else you can see to say to them, such as a massive announcement that will get them um, to engage again. Let's go back to the start. Obviously, CRM, right message, right time, right person, right platform, treating 
individuals as individuals, should we say, and uh, and personalizing the message as, as much as possible. You talked about the principles um, that you wrote about in in book number one, not having changed much in in book number two. But principles do move with time and obviously with technology. And this is a very nascent area. I know it's been around for twenty years, but the the in relative terms, it's a, it's a new area. So have any, while the principles might not have changed, have any of them hardened and any of them softened, in your opinion, over the last three years? So the only thing that I would say is change. I mean, the principles haven't changed. This is about right message, right person, right time. Ten years ago, it was right message, right person, right time. Now it's right message, right person, right time, right platform, because there, are so, there is so much choice. So that hasn't changed and it isn't going to change. But interestingly, there is a camp of um, people, individuals, businesses, uh, call it what you will, who believe that actually we don't want personalization because right message, right person, right time is all about personalization, isn't it? That's saving people time by giving them information you believe they want, that your data tells you they want, as opposed to information you want to give them. So there's a camp of believers that say, of course they want personalization because they want things to be easy and they want them, uh, they want to make it easy. I, I'm firmly in that camp. I want to go to Amazon and I want their predictive analytics to understand the type of stuff I'm going to be looking for. Yeah. Um, but there's all not want personalization. The only people who are saying the industry needs personalization are the businesses that sell personalization. So I found that a really interesting discussion to follow. Those people that are saying we don't need right message, right person, right time. People would prefer to be anonymous and figure it out for themselves. And I'm a big believer that that comes down to the right person principle, that you're never going to have 100 percent of everybody agree with anything. You're never going to have 100 percent of people use your emails, 100 percent of people follow you on Twitter. It is all about finding the right approach, content, channel, message for the right person or based on what the other camp is saying, letting people who don't want to hear from you not hear from you. But that's what an unsubscribe button's for. That's what incognito browsers are for that's what you know opting out of retargeting advertising is for those applications have been put in place to cater for those people who do not want personalization so you know no changes in the principles just changes in opinions changes in technologies massive changes in what we can do with the data we're generating because of course we're generating more and more data so we've always talked about you know, your key data points being demographics, behavioral, transactional. I think what's next for the sports industry, and there are some rights owners using this, is um, the qualitative data that's more about the way people are feeling, their emotions, their motivations. You know, people refer to net promoter score, which of course is quite a prosaic um, version of this. But that principle of understanding what's driving your fan or your customer, as opposed to what have they done in the past and using that to predict what they're likely to do in the future. Yeah, it's always hard because people don't act logically. People also act against their own interests. And and also your propensity to buy something. I don't know about you, Fiona, but a couple of things have turned up in my house after I bought them after 11 o'clock on, on Amazon when I've been in a weak, tired and maybe slightly inebriated position. Um, I wouldn't want anyone to use that data as an indication <laughs> of future performance, right? Really because I didn't want the damn thing. I was just weak, right? So there's... <laughs> <laughs> but what they... Ah, but Richard, what they will do is know that 11 o'clock on a Saturday night is a good time to yeah. get you. 
with a message about items they can't get rid of because there's a really good chance you'll buy them. Yeah, I'm open to buying, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful wacky things. Yeah, so that's the best time to ping me. Maybe so, maybe so. But but uh, the, the point is the the concept when we're talking about psychological things the concept of of the human as rational and they've acted previously that way so they're going to act in the future yeah. this as well. i don't that's a complicated issue really complicated 100 percent, and that's why you know that's why we haven't yet developed it yet and it's also why i have a problem with net promoter score in sports because you ask somebody as they leave a stadium how are the hot dogs well if your team's been canned 5-0 they're going to say they were terrible they were cold I hated them even though they, they were most fantastic five-star hot dogs in the world but if your team's won 1-0 and the hot dogs were rank cold stiff chewy they're going to say they were amazing everything was amazing because they just friggin won so that's my challenge with um, the principle of net promoter score but yeah this issue is really interesting and um, Charlie Shin a massively smart guy he used to be at the MLS he's now with a club um, in the States, um, he introduced me to a new concept. It's not a new concept. It was a new concept to me. This whole principle of customer personas, we develop them based on the type of stuff you just said, you know, the data points that we have access to. He introduced me to a concept called jobs to be done, which was developed by this incredibly smart chap. Unfortunately, he passed away, but um, he was a New York, um, New York University academic. So the principle behind jobs to, to be done is that we don't think about who Richard is, what he looks like, his marital status, his household income, when did he purchase, what did he do, what did it, you know. We think about what is Richard actually trying to achieve with this purchase or with this fandom or with this engagement. So, for example, um, you, you buy, the reason you buy Red Bull, as their advert shows, to give you wings, to make you feel great, to make you do this, make you do that, is to make you feel something. It's not buying Red Bull because you're this age, you're this gender, this is your buying the hat. And, and, and so it's taking that principle of understanding people's motivations based on what's going on in their head and their heart, as opposed to their, their actions. But it's just so difficult because it takes us into um, neural networks. You know, it takes artificial intelligence to its absolute nth degree where we're trying to replicate what's happening in a person's brain using technology. So it's, it's a really complex area. I, I think it's a really interesting, interesting point because one of my issues with CRM is that it's not enough about the R, the relationship part. It's too, I see lots of presentations and they, and they measure themselves on financial transactions. Whereas for me, as a, as a supporter of a club, I would love to see more presentations from CRA professionals developing the relationship, the story, which would lead, which also taps into why am I supporting this club? What's my emotion? What's my motivation? Why do I keep coming back even though they've been losing for 10 years? Because there's no actual logic in that, in a sense, apart from the emotional side. Okay. And do you accept my point? I mean, I, I see lots yeah, yeah, of no, I think, presentations well, and they're about money. They're about yeah. money. They're trying to sell me stuff. I was just going to say, firstly, Richard, you're probably sitting in the wrong presentations. But secondly, um, one of my favourite quotes about this area was from a guy called Colin Rattigan, who used to be um, a senior VP at Adidas. And he said his KPI for the business is not about how many um, how much worth of merchandise he shifts. It's about how much engagement he generates, because the end result of engagement is revenue. Full stop. So chase the engagement, not the revenue. So, yeah, this is all about the, the presentations that you're sitting in. But I, I do come back to this sentiment and emotion stuff. 
I mean, think about how hard it is for, for the UK, people trying to understand motivations and mentality and emotion of the UK. I mean, when you're watching a game and you say, great pass, a machine, a computer can't tell whether you're going, oh, great pass, when it was a dud versus great pass. Because at the end of the day, they're taking the words and converting them into binary numbers, a naught and a one fundamentally. How do you tell whether that was a sarcastic great pass or an absolutely brilliant great pass? And that's the whole challenge with taking that emotion and taking that motivation. And as I say, it takes us into a path of neural networks, which is getting computers to understand what we're actually thinking, getting a, a computer to act, behave like a brain. Now, that's really challenging because, you know, converting words or converting actions into data that we can use means converting it into text, converting it into ones and noughts. And I always use the sarcasm example because that's the best possible example because it's, you know, even Americans talk about the British sarcasm. So, you know, it's something that's easy to, to understand. I agree. Just going back on what, what you said at the start, I have been in a lot of presentations. I've not seen anything but financial results. And, it, and even, even what you spoke about there, well, engagement leads to, to revenue. The end result is still revenue. So, you know, I'll throw it back to you. What, well, you know, who's, who's, who's judging? No, no, just give me examples of who's judging their CRM on the relationship deepening the emotion, which has a knock-on effect, but for the emotion first. And uh, just give me a case study. Well, well, firstly, as I mentioned, that chap at Adidas, Colin Matigan, formerly, of, he said straight away that was his KPI. But, but that leads to money. Way. But that's about it leading to money. Richard, show me a business, a functioning business that does not have a bottom line. Come Ooh. on. Man United, of course that. they care about what their fans say, but their fans also want to see them by the best centre forward who, who will help them win the Champions League. It that. comes down to money. So, yes, we might say engagement, participation, fandom, I want you to love me. But if you are operating as a business, then at some point in time, the money has to kick in. People would be naive to suggest it doesn't. And that's why the presentations that you're sat in, for example, of course, they're going to end up with money because whichever presentations you're looking at, whether they are presentations to sell you content or design or technology or consultancy, somebody has to pay for it. OK. And by the way, my favorite conversation at the moment, talk about being crude and commercial when it comes to data. My favorite conversation, and this was is driven by a learning I'm, I'm getting from a guy called Doug Lancey, who created this concept called informatics, is imagine when we can put a database or your data on your balance sheet as a corporate asset. And he's written this fantastic article in Forbes that I'm trying to share with as many people as I can. And the title of it is, your company's data might be worth more than your company itself. I mean, imagine imagine somebody going to buy Leeds United and out of all the assets that are listed on the balance sheet, one of them is data. Imagine what that number is going to be next to it. So, look, let, let's be honest about it. We use the words engagement, participation, fandom, emotional connection, but we are all businesses. And what makes businesses work? Money. It's as simple as that. Well, of course, of course, of course they do. But sport obviously is is it's a passion industry of course you know? it's a so, passion so there's but some the different dynamics at play but the can the fans can't have passion unless they've got a team to watch a team cannot perform unless there's money to pay the players of course of course but 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 we've but we've moved into a situation 
in sport per se, where the, the business side, from many fans' perspective, has taken over and taken away the emotional side. And I, I, while I, I, I love, I agree with you in terms of the way data should be used, I would think I want, to, want a more personalised experience. I want it to tap into the emotions of me. That's going to have a knock-on effect. It's where you judge it because, of course, you need money. And you know what? I've got no problem if my team wins, buying that that shirt with, you know, uh, uh, cup winners, blah, blah, blah on it. But at the same time, I've also contributed last year when my cricket club hasn't got any revenue coming in purely, purely for the emotional side. I'm not. Course, uh, so, so, so all I'm saying, there's, a, there's a, a slightly different dynamic going on because of the emotional side of sport. Of course, you need money, but there's a, a, a fundamental issue at the heart of certainly the higher levels of sports like Premier League and NFL of greed. So, so it's, I, it's not about not making money. It's about greed. That, I'm that's probably the, the wrong, Yeah, Richard, I'm probably the wrong person to have this discussion with because, firstly, whilst I hugely appreciate fandom, and that's actually why I work in sport, because I love the fact that sport can generate tears of joy but also tears of sadness tears of pride and all the rest of it but I'm also a commercial person and I'm a realist and I'm a pragmatist so I know that we cannot generate these tears of joy and these this these pride moments of pride without revenue okay I also believe in unfortunately it's market demand do I wish Premier League players weren't spent weren't paid so much and we could pay nursing staff more of course I do but this is about market forces now in terms of the the, the term greed I don't know that I can align with that because greed is a personal thing and surely that's yeah. down to the individual people and I don't know these individual people when I look at these fantastic tele, television, uh, street, uh, TV deals, media deals that the Premier League or the NFL or the NBA are doing, it's because there's a demand for that and people are prepared to pay it and that money is needed to continue to develop and sustain the sport. What happens with shareholders? What happens with personal wealth? You're getting into a whole nother discussion about the unfairness of the, you know, the difference between the haves and the have-nots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not uh, no, I, I just, <laughs> I, I, I just, look, we'll, we'll move on. It's just my reaction to, to, yeah. to, to the concept of, oh, well, we need money. That's, that's too simplistic. And we live in the real world. We need, we need money to do this. Well, yeah, I, I think there's a different dynamic going on in sport. And this, and this is, and this is a sort of a fissure as sport has become more business orientated, and the interesting part of it is that CRM's at the bridge of that fissure because that is how modern sports organizations are trying to communicate with their fans. And yet that process, unless it's done sensitively, and that's I was just point, going to say, yeah. And that's and, the point. But this is, this is, I'm sorry, Richard, it's also the same about your previous job when you were working for a football club and the way you wrote stories, a good story writer for a football club will write a story that the fans want to hear not a story that they want to put out yeah correct that goes down to the people's ability you know we've got a massive massive shortage of data skills according to the eu 571,000 unfilled jobs in 2018 with the word data in the title okay so if you're a smaller club with lesser resources you don't have the budget or the opportunity to hire somebody who understands data enough to do exactly what you're thinking 
what you're suggesting. Think about the fans first. They're going to have to hire people who've no idea what data is and just write a press release. Absolutely. So, you know, we're, de- we're dealing yeah. with what, what, what we can deal with here. But uh, sport needs money. Of course it does. But of course it needs the fans. And if we were ever to get into a debate about what comes first, I don't know how I'd answer that. All I know is if if your favourite club will not pay that player the money that he needs or believes he deserves, he'll go and play in China where they will pay him or in America where they will pay him. So ask the fans on the terraces, do you want our club to pay for this player or do you want him to go and play in, in, in North America? It's interesting how that discussion's actually moved because I think fans actually see a little bit wider than they used to. Yes, there'll be the noisy ones that don't, but I think there's a a whole bedrock that are are trying to understand, well, okay, chasing money and chasing and throwing money at players is only gets you so far and it it, it, uh, it picks and chops. You know what, Richard, can I I, I just say just a final point? I've been in sports, professional sports, for 30 years and the conversation has been the same for the 30 years. The bubble's going to pop, pop, things are going to implode, blah, 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 blah. We're paying too much money. We're not caring enough about the fans. And it's been the same message for 30 years. And I don't know what the answer is or the solution is. I'm not that smart. All I know is that if we use data the way it should be used, we can improve the experience for the fans. The challenge is we just don't have enough knowledge and skills to keep up with the pace of technology. From a content perspective, one thing that that always strikes me is there's a lot of focus on the data side and segmenting the data, reaching people. The actual, I think there's not enough specialist content professionals involved in the CRM process at times because that messaging is fundamental. That that messaging is absolutely fundamental. And you're right, a good content uh, person is going to understand how to reach a certain demographic in a different way. I, I've always argued there's a, a there's a while there's a there's a need for data professionals. There's also a need for we're talking about right message, which is crucial. Yeah, right time. Well, that that investment in the message and the nuance of the message isn't isn't always as crafted as I would like it to be. Thoughts on that, Richard? We, Richard, we ha- well, we, I just had that very same conversation with a client this week. Um, I was talking to the senior manager uh, of the client, the CEO, actually, and we were talking about the different way we're cutting your data to create segments, blah, blah, blah. And we were talking about progress and what does the um, coming 12 months look like? I said, the challenge you have is it doesn't matter how much we know about your customers, your fans, you don't have the ability to produce the quantity of content to be able to deliver it. A basic crude example, we can produce six different customer segments that need six different versions of basically the same message you only have the resources to deliver one version of the message so you know there's that balance as well as you say that the the value of the data we're creating or generating and the way we're presenting it and the ability to use it through the marketing channel for the right message bit is only as valuable as our ability to generate the right message and you know as I say I had that very conversation with a client CEO this week and likewise I always think, you know, th- th- these are my thoughts, so feel free to knock me down. But there's, there's a sometimes too much emphasis on the technology rather than the culture within the club to deal with the data correctly, to make sure that everyone's on board with regard to the data. I mean, one thing I've taken from you and I took from your book last time was the ability or the, the importance of having a data champion, someone who was responsible for the process within the organisation. 
because too often you would have a situation where people would revert to previous formats of uh, inputting data or, or they'd revert or to old ways. Collecting it, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's part of the challenge for any industry when they're trying to embrace a new strategy or a new approach. And we call it business change, cultural change or cultural silos that make it a challenge. And actually, it was Mick Canetta from Arsenal who provided the case study for the first edition of the book. And we've he's updated it, generously updated it for the second edition of the book. But yeah, absolutely, that can be a challenge. So we use this term BAU, business as usual. What we're trying to embed is, what we're trying to do is embed these processes as business as usual. So we automatically do it. Mm. That's, that's down to the individuals. I mean, look, with your, your you and me, we're of a certain age group. So we've spent more times more time doing things in an analog fashion than we have in a digital fashion but thankfully for the younger generation those involved in startups or just graduated they've only ever known digital yeah yeah so that that cultural challenge will lessen and lessen having said that once they get to our age there'll be other things as well that they're going to have to pick up and adopt who knows what it's going to be but without a doubt the technology is never a driver it's only ever an enabler we need processes, we need strategy, we need so many other things to be in place to ensure we can do this properly, which is why it develops slowly, why we are developing slowly. Because, you know, this is actually something I was talking about last night with a group of people. Everybody, a lot of people think that the sports industry, even Manchester United with the Dallas Cowboys, are these massive enterprises. But actually, in the scheme of world industry, they're small to medium businesses, yeah? But because of the share of voice, because of the passion, because of what our, you know, the way our messages are amplified, people think we're all bigger than Procter and Gamble. No, you know, so that that disproportion between our fans expectation because of the way they see us, the way the media present us and the actual reality of our turnover, our net profit and our resources, you know, it's just like hugely different one one end of the spectrum to the other and that can be a challenge to fill the the skills gap with that challenging business um, situation and, and the expectation of uh, supporters given that they they have a perception of the industry being so big they expect i think there are certain element of fans that will expect very personal service if well, they're and, they're also, and by the way they'll also expect season ticket prices not to go up Yep. The replica oh, shirts to say the same price, but the club to win the championship that season by hiring the best players. Correct. Okay. Yep. So, and, and it is a dichotomy. And, you know, going back to that question, what's more important than the fans or the money? We wouldn't have sport without the fans, full stop. We wouldn't have money without the fans, but we, we have to, we have to also bear in mind that we need the money. It's like another, another argument that constantly goes on, which is, which, which is more important the media or the sport because the sport can't grow without the media but the media doesn't have anything to talk about without the sport it's thankfully a marriage made in heaven that we rely on each other the fans are just as important as the sport itself but money makes the world go round. unfortunately we have to deal with it look i mean there, there's huge I, i've just been writing about this huge hypocrisy in the way that supporters feel about their clubs where they expect a winning team with Team with players coming through from the youth department. Well, you know, apart from <laughs> Manchester United in 1999, it's hard to win with kids, okay? And if you put kids in young, 
the team's going to be their team performances, their ability to get points will be affected nine times out of 10. But that's what we want. We also want the big signings and we want that shirt price. And we, yeah. absolutely, there's hypocrisy yeah. on, the, on the side of the fans. But I think we agreed. I think we agreed that it was about. I wouldn't use the term hypocrisy. I would, I would actually position it as the wonderful principle of sport that it's the passion it's the passion because you get to a point where you're so passionate about something you leave logic behind and I would I would I love that and I would never do without that but yes as a business person as a pragmatist I have to come back to the reality and that's why you're sitting in these presentations where CRM's all about the money because they're thinking pragmatically it doesn't mean we don't understand the value of, of fans and the passion that they generate I did a, a podcast with a guy called Rich Luke who, who ran ESPN Sports Poll for many years. And um, he, was, he was talking about the importance of preteen kids, actually, in, in laying down the future of sport. But, of course, the issue is marketing to, to preteen kids is, well, I, I was looking on your blog and it's, is it 13 to 16 is the kind of bandwidth <coughs> start marketing. So there's a very important area that... Uh, CRM marketing can't touch and it's always been an important area I mean the the pop charts back in the day was I've read about it and they used to say the, the UK chart was dependent on the preferences of preteen girls that's what they used to say about about the pop charts and a many a career was won or lost on that so you know, that marketing <laughs> to, ch- to children is really important and yet what's the what's the modern data play on that and thinking about that yeah, given so that there's it, so many it, restrictions it's direct marketing, Richard. It's actually the use of somebody's individual data. So, for example, content on websites, content in social channels, although, again, there's an age restriction on signing up for a social channel. Yes, content on but, TV. but that's ignored a lot, but there we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, no, it's about the targeted marketing because social yeah. channels aren't targeted marketing unless you're paying for the advertising that goes with it. Um, you, you use your social channels, but it's, it's the ability to actually say, this person who I know is 12 is going to receive a direct message from me. And you're right, the age reference, and this is um, GDPR and the EU only, and EU and some other countries, is that the GDPR says the minimum age is 16, but each country within the EU or whoever adopts the GDPR also has the ability to reduce that age should they choose to, and the lowest age limit you can take it down to is 13. But, you know, that makes sense. We don't want to be spamming because... Unfortunately, some people don't do this very well and they spam and they spam and they spam and people can be, um, you know, easily, easily swayed, as you showed on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock when you purchased something. Goodness knows what. I mean, you would almost want there to be a control that it's not just people of a certain age. It's people who are vulnerable, people who are easily swayed, people who have intellectual disability. You know, you'd want to put those controls in a, a, a uh, in place as well but ultimately we're dealing with individual uh, organizations and we're dealing with their own ethics and their own morals and we're looking for rights owners to do the right thing by their fans which i would suggest they do this this point you made about the, the big greed in america whatever I, again i can't talk to that all i would be able to say is if you are a u.s sports fan of one of the major leagues you know the experience you get is pretty exciting you know because they invest so much in the in the customer experience and, and many rights owners in Europe are adopting and following. Well, I, I'd suggest we're a couple of years behind, generally speaking, um, but, but they're improving that experience and that's what we all want. I, I, and you're absolutely right. It is more about the experience in the US. And one thing I had to learn when I worked in US sports was that some of the 
we could, I'll call them moral objectives or, or the way that sport was marketed. No issue. No issue. You know, we're going to, this corner was bought to you by blah, blah product. <laughs> this free kick yeah. was brought to you by that sort of stuff yeah. that I would think, what? Unless it causes no you issue. to miss a goal, which sometimes happens yeah, yeah. when they broadcast football. <laughs> so, so, and also if you, if, you know, when I worked in, in Indonesia, the way, their badging process goes on with regard to sponsorship it's everywhere and and that was what was accepted i would argue that that would move on and change going forward but culturally it's important and i'm a product of of uk sport which is very traditional based very emotional based and you need to think wider because we are a global world as well obviously we've talked a lot about uh, crm its usage in terms of um direct email marketing okay um where where are we in terms of uh, social media marketing and crm we're talking about sentiment data whether that can be 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 plugged in to build up a a bigger picture of the um uh, of the customer potentially but also in marketing so what's the state of play there okay so so when you use social channels in a silo when you post content on your social channels you know this richard you're not in control of who actually sees the message, okay? The platforms are, and Facebook's the best example of that and the way they adopt their algorithm. Well, our, our proposition is the only time you can use social channels and consider them part of your CRM ecosystem or whatever term you want to use is A, when you're using paid social, because then you have control over you know, creating the audience that you want to target, or B, if you have an application that, that you know, it's called social sign-on. So whatever you're doing, whether it's selling tickets, signing up to hear news, open an account, you're inviting people to use their social account. That way you can link the data you have in your database with somebody's social handle, yeah. a social name or whatever account name, then you can bring the two together and then you can use that information to be more targeted and relevant in your approach. The thing with social sentiment data I have not yet seen, I've seen lots of different applications. The challenge we have is they were developed on the principle of scraping, scraping data, because of course the social channels don't want to provide you with that insight, because if they do, you have less and less need to use their channels for targeted marketing, to pay for the advertising, because you can take that beautiful social sentiment you get out of those channels, put it into your own environment and and use it there instead. So unless there have been more developments in the area. Predominantly, everything I've seen comes down to these standard principles of using a social login or using social advertising and then using a scraping process to try and actually pull out uh, the sentiment. We have been working with some nice tools recently that allow us to get more data out of social, particularly Facebook. So you're able to pull out you know, pet, pet responses to posts and apply them to an actual person and stuff like that. But we still don't know how you apply sentiment to that at scale. I mean, obviously, if you read an individual quote, you know what the, the sentiment is. But we're talking about doing things at scale here, doing them for 100 people, 1,000 people, 100,000 people. You can only really use social one-on-one when you are actually reading each individual post. Well, show me a rights owner or a rights owner that's um, in the professional environment has the ability to do that. So we're trying to automate it. We're trying to do it at scale. I'm not aware of um, any environment that allows you to bring that social um, data into your 
owned data environment and use the same approach without it involving some level of scraping, which is um, banned in um, Europe. I saw something quite interesting recently, and this wasn't deliberate with regard to data, but Ipswich said, you can't go back in the stadium. You tell us your seat number and we'll take a picture from your seat number and reply to you. And they're thinking, well, great, you've got... You've got a load of Twitter handles from your season ticket holders, basically. There, I'm not sure that they'd use it that way. I'm not. It wasn't nice designed idea, that way, right? but it was actually nice idea. actually yeah. quite a, an interesting idea that they replied to everyone individually. They had someone going around with a picture, and of course, I was there thinking, well, that's quite good because I'd be putting those in any in a in a in a Twitter list, and I'd be maybe having that on my tweet deck, and I'd be there thinking, well, okay, I could monitor some sentiment there from some sort of sort of hardcore season ticket fans quite interesting but the point uh, is because because the person's having to tell them their seat number they're managing to go to their ticketing systems and take the seat number and say who is who is sitting in that seat so yes what you've just talked about doing it in tweet deck that's going to have that's going to enable you to handle the communication within the social channel but what they're able then to do is take that and put it into their CRM database because they're going to have the customer ID that they got out of their ticketing system and be able to align it to the customer ID in their social channel. I, I don't know whether they would have done it manually. I can't. I mean, even even though it's which isn't Man United, that's still you know I would expect a couple of thousand people that they're dealing with there. But I hey, think it's only a couple hundred people. Is, I was going to say it depends on how many people responded at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but to do things like that at scale, you're talking about technology, data and automation. There's almost a split in the way that sport uses data, because if you are talking about an Ipswich, you're talking very local club in League One. Obviously, they're, they're a big club in the past, but uh, a, a League One club now. They almost have different ambitions to a Manchester United whose who's, uh, database will be crossing probably every country in the world. I would think. Well, we always we always talk about um, rights owners should have the same ambition as Amazon, Google, Netflix, and Spotify. The, the ambition should always be to think about your customer first. To, so instead of saying how much should I charge for this ticket, say how much would my customer, my fans, be prepared to pay. Instead of saying what story should I put out today, it should be what story would my fans and my customers like to hear. So I'd say that ambition should always be the same. It's just the scale the framing of it is going to be different. So Man United will have a global ambition in the way they treat their customers and fans. Ipswich is currently might just be Ipswich only. It might be county only. It might be England only. It might be the UK only. But the amount of investment, whether it's content because of different languages or technology because of applications, the amount of um, supporting services or resources you need to deliver and support that ambition is different different from Man United, it's different for Ipswich, it's different for Amazon, it's different to Spotify. But the, the ambition and the principles should always be the same. And that's why I said principles haven't changed. Make the customer feel valued um, and then you'll get your rewards. So that should always be the ambition. It's just the way in which you implement it, the pace, the scale, the focus will be different depending on the organisation. If you are an Ipswich, is it more important to have a the right person managing this because often they think about it's a it's a you've got to spend money it, you've got to buy some technology to solve this whereas if you're an Ipswich is it better to have to, to invest more in the in the person who understands this you do an e-course for example just to plug your e-course for, for you thank you but 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 someone who understands the process of that given that we are, are dealing with smaller numbers and the and the the technology 
is great, but it, yeah. you'll be wasting some money if you uh, Whichever level you're operating, you're always going to want to invest in the right people because technology is not a silver bullet. I'm talking about my book again. Oscar Ugas, who you probably know, gave me a fantastic quote for the book. And he talks about it should be an 80-20 split, 20% on the software license, for example, 80% on the people to operate it. So whether you're Ipswich or Man United, the people are always going to be more important than the technology. Technology doesn't run itself. It's about the people and the processes that go with it. So it's just as important in either way. But if somebody had to make a choice on their investment, do I hire another headcount or do I license a piece of software? That shouldn't be an argument because if you don't have the right headcount, you can't implement the software anyway. So always go with the person because if you can't do it manually, you can't automate it. So if you haven't got the investment to automate it, let the, per the right person figure out, out, figure out how to do it manually. A really basic example of that, and you've already mentioned email marketing, the cornerstone of um, targeted marketing, digital data-driven marketing is email marketing. It's not going to go away. It's been around for years. We're just getting better and better at it. So, of course, you need an email marketing campaign platform to be able to do email marketing properly because it provides you the trackable links. It provides you this. It provides you that. But if you don't have the ability to license that software, then a person can take the principles and just do it in Outlook, but it's going to mean only 50 emails at a time versus 500 or 5,000 or 50,000. So always invest in the people because there will always be a workaround until you've got the return on investment, the justification, the business requirement to make that investment in the technology. It's three years since you wrote the last book. What's, what do you predict is going to happen in the next three years in this space, CRM Sports? You know, it's, it's, it's so funny, Richard. The last chapter is um, where do we go next? And, you know, I'm, I, I self-profess in there that I'm not a futurologist. I'm not smart enough to know. And my principle is we're just going to be doing more and more and more. Not a great answer. But as I say, the things that particularly drive me now and the conversations I'm interested in are data as a corporate asset. This whole... Um, um, excitement around um, blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in the cryptocurrency discussion. I understand it's a tactical opportunity. It's great. But I'm interested in the principle of blockchain, replacing the principle of databases. So actually using blockchain as a way to manage and, and migrate data because of its security. Um, I've never been involved in the performance of uh, the data and performance of sports. So on a personal level, I'd like to see that. But, you know, other than that, I'm not smart enough to understand. I just think it's going to be more usage of data, more availability of data, um, more technology that's going to support all of this. What that actually looks like. You need to be asking people a lot cleverer than me. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I've read your first book and I'm looking forward to reading uh, the second. Um, and uh, Fiona Green, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for giving me the opportunity, Richard. I really appreciate it. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com.